The title of this morning's message is Eve's Heart Cry. It is my contention this morning, may I submit to you, that the heart cry of Eve herself, the first woman created, given the promise that through her seed would come a deliverer, the heart cry of Eve is echoed in the faithful cries of women through the scriptures up even to our day, but especially highlighted in moments like our text today reveals where the word of God comes, and in so many words, it is met with a heart, be it unto me according to your word. The aim of this morning's message is to feature the glories of Scripture, following the hope of Eve herself through the patriarchal into the prophetic era of history. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word again as we turn to the Scriptures and behold the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. This is the immutable, inerrant word of Christ. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Genesis 4.1. Young people this morning, quick trivia question. What did Eve say when she bore Cain? When Eve had her son Cain, what did she say? Anyone remember? Anyone? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have... Close. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Good answer. Eve, Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This perhaps is a reference to the heart cry of Eve in faith, in the word that came by way of judgment to the serpent, that one day a seed, the seed of the woman would provide a deliverer who would crush evil, Satan, death's head, in fact, 
though his heel would be bruised, the triumph would be uh, all the sweeter and secure, and the hope of our future and our salvation from sin and death and the consequences of the fall would be secured in the seed of the woman. Would it come through Cain? Yes or no? No. No. Cain arose and killed his brother. In our Genesis study, we have noted the hope invested in the cry of Eve in Genesis 4.1 when she exclaims, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This moment occurs after the fall, after banishment from Eden upon the birth of her son Cain. The Lord had promised after all that a future son of Eve would crush the serpent's head. Though Eve's hopes were not realized in her son Cain, far from it. Nevertheless, may I suggest her heart cry lives on through the legacy of faithful women, through the patriarchal period, and into the judges and the prophets. In many cases, there are anguished women who follow in the heart cry of Eve, in the legacy of her hope and a deliverer to come. In many cases, their anguish stems from their own barrenness as they cry out to God to open their womb that they might bear a son and carry forward the hope of Eve herself. Genesis 21, 6 through 7, echoes this sentiment. Sarah, you remember Sarah was the wife of? Good job. Sarah, the wife of Abraham. She was the beloved wife of Abraham, yet barren. Barren meaning she could not have children until God did a miracle. Sarah, beloved yet barren wife of Abraham, exclaims, quote, God has made laughter over me. Who would have said it to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. She names her son, children, do you know? What was Sarah's son's name? Isaac. Isaac means laughter. In fact, I'm told that the name laughter is sort of like ha 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 in our language. It is the noise of laughter. It is the sound of laughter from what I'm told. Why did Sarah name her son this? Well, she laughed when she first heard the word of the Lord, the prophecy, thinking it wasn't possible. And that laugh was something like cynical doubt. But cynical doubt in the testimony of Sarah gives way to miraculous joy. When she rejoices in the promised son, out of her barrenness, the Lord has resurrected her as, as such as brought her new life in Isaac, her son. And thus she joins with the heart cry of Eve, saying in so many words, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She's not the only one. In Genesis 30, 22 through 24, this joins the account of Sarah in Genesis 21, 6 through 7, as her grandson joins the, uh, grandson's wife joins the chorus of Eve's hope upon the birth of her son, uh, Joseph, as she cries. This, of course, is Rachel, beloved yet barren wife of Jacob. Rachel, beloved yet barren wife of Jacob, finally, by the miraculous touch of the Lord's right hand, bears a son, and she cries, quote, God has taken away my reproach. Does anyone know uh, Rachel's first son, his name? Does anyone know? Joseph, that is correct. Joseph goes on to be a picture, a type of a deliverer to come. He delivers his family. He delivers the future lineage of all of Israel. God raises him up as a figure, an, ex, an expectant son, that will, or a figure that represents the son that is expected in the lineage of redemption that will one day deliver all the people of God. 
God has taken away the reproach of Rachel by giving her Joseph, who goes forth in a messianic calling to serve as a type in redemptive history, pointing forward to the Christ to come. This brings us to our story today, to the account of 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. We have another such circumstance, another such situation. 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 11 gives us the account, or 1 Samuel 2, uh, 1 through 10 gives us the account of Hannah's prayer upon receiving this son and then dedicating him to the service of the Lord at Shiloh. But the prior chapter gives us the account of a woman who was the beloved yet barren wife of Elkanah. Elkanah was the husband of Hannah, and she was the favored wife, and she had no children. It says that in 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 11, the following, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She prayed this in her deep distress. Hannah's prayer life soon turned, soon changed from petition to praise. Just like the laughter of Sarah changed from cynicism to overjoy. As chapter 2 reveals her joy and her heart of worship to the Lord. As she fulfills her vows to dedicate her son. What was her son's name? Hannah's son. Anyone know? Son of Hannah. His name was Samuel. So when Samuel was still young, Hannah goes, he dedicates him to the service of the Lord at Shiloh in the place, the tabernacle at this time, in the service of Eli the high priest and his sons. And at this point in covenant history, the heart cry of Eve, therefore, expands in particular prophetic beauty, anticipating yet another son to come. And Hannah's prayer thus unfolds, moving this thread of expectation of the seed of the woman through the course of God's plan for history to this chapter and this phase. And that brings us to our text today. There are perhaps four ways or four parts that we could separate Hannah's prayer into this morning under this heading. Prophetic significance of Eve's heart cry expounded in Hannah's prayer. The heart cry of a son to come who would be a deliverer That prophetic significance is evident in four different categories, may I suggest this morning, in Hannah's prayer. The first is an introduction or preamble, verses 1 and 2, introducing her prayer. The second could fall under the theme of the fortunes of men and covenant triumph. Fortunes meaning the future or the blessings, the promises given unto men and the triumph of the covenant that is the promises of God. Thirdly, the fortunes of men and the sovereignty of God, His power to accomplish that which He has foreordained, that which He has promised beforehand. And finally, fourthly, fortunes of men and the glory of the Messiah. So let us behold the heart cry of Eve, now expanded, echoed, uh, and prophetically proclaimed in the prayer, the joyful, worshipful prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Considering again, verses 1 and 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies.
because I rejoice in your salvation. She goes on, verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. This is the opening, the preamble, the introduction to Hannah's prayer. Prophetically celebrating the birth of her son, yet proclaiming a glorious future of the birth of one yet to come. There are three, three themes that reoccur in Hannah's prayer. They don't only occur in Hannah's prayer, but they're also evident in the prayer of Mary, which was our worship text today. The Song of Mary sometimes is called the Magnificat, which will be our text next week, Lord willing. These themes are as follows. Number one, the holiness of God. Number two, the humiliation of His enemies. And number three, hope for His people. Write those down in your notes if you're taking notes. These are three themes in the worship of Hannah. Upon the answer to her prayer, that a son of significance would be born unto her, that was the fulfillment of a chapter of God's plan to redeem man through the womb of woman, as it were. Three themes. Number one, holiness of God. Number two, humiliation of His enemies. And number three, hope for His people. These themes are granted, given in summary in verses 1 and 2. Notice, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. And then, My strength is exalted in the Lord. Her choice of words here is the highest, most holy, most set apart, most consecrated, most celebrated name for the Lord in Old Testament covenant history, Yahweh Himself. The I am that I am, Lord, in all caps probably in your translation there, indicates the one who is, who was, who is to come, the one who is self-sufficient, needs no other, is perfect and complete in Himself. And this one in His self-contained power to accomplish all His holy will makes promises unto His people who know for certain based upon the agent, the one who delivers to them His word that they will absolutely come to pass without fail according to His absolute perfect plan. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, never a word of His fails. In fact, not even a word of His will fail through the prophets who speak on His behalf. This was actually proclaimed of Samuel himself, the son of Hannah. It was the covenant-keeping God of Yahweh who placed His word in Samuel's mouth as a prophet to come who proclaimed His word of judgment, humiliation for enemies, and hope, salvation for His people, and proclaim the holiness, the set-apartness, the beauty, the glory, the power, the all-knowingness, the omniscience, the all-powerfulness, the omnipotence of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Now, when, Mary, when uh, Hannah sets her mind and her attention, her affections upon this truth, her heart, her inner being, her everything, that which causes her to uh, rise up in joy and worship of the Lord, that which is stirred to a, a joy and exaltation and glory in, in the Lord upon the revelation of His Word, it rises up within her. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. She focuses her desire, her attention even her decisions upon the Lord. So much so that this woman who cried and begged the Lord for a son, if I could only have a son, plagued by the mockery of another wife who is very fertile, and day after day living in light of this competitive <coughs> tension between her and the wife 
who was able to bear children, crying out, oh Lord, could you just give me a son? And what does she do after she receives the child? She carries him along for just a couple of years or however long was the norm at the time, I suppose, until he is weaned. And then she gives her son to the Lord. As an act of worship, she provides her son to the service of the Lord in his place of habitation with, her, with his people. And as she does so, she does not cry out in the same anguish and prayer and, and, and uh, deep emotional pain because she uh, lost a son, but instead her heart is moved to exalt in the Lord. She is thankful that she has been given this precious gift, that she might offer it back to the Lord, him, that is Samuel, to the Lord in worship. In this, we see her heart exalting in the Lord, not just in this prayer, not just in her words, but also in her dedicating of her young son to the Lord, to Yahweh. She she says, also, my strength is exalted in the Lord. You see, there's this reciprocal relationship Her heart takes refuge as exalt is lifted in the Lord. And when that happens, the Lord makes her strong. This word for strength is actually uh, transliterated horn. The actual translation, word for word or idea for idea, is horn. That is instrument of dignity, instrument of power. Her heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord, in Yahweh. Hannah, in recognizing the holiness of God, knows that he is deserving of her highest praise and her deepest sacrifice. And so she offers to the Lord both for his faithfulness and grace, granting to her what she did not deserve and the birth of her son Samuel. And so she praises him. Hannah, by the grace of God, goes on, as I recall, to have five other children. Nevertheless, at this time we see in the preamble of her prayer, the holiness of God. Also, we see in her next phrase, the humiliation of his enemies. She says, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. My mouth derides my enemies. So Hannah shares the enemies of Yahweh. We've mentioned this concept. It's oftentimes foreign to our modern sensibilities. Why? Because we bristle in our culture today often at the notion of a God who reveals himself by judging the deserving. Yet this was not the case. People were not shy about the justice and judgments of God, and especially in the Old Covenant, actually all through the Scriptures. And Hannah joins in the purposes of God to judge his enemies. When she says, my mouth derides my enemies, meaning in union with the Lord, in the knowledge that I am on his side, I am therefore opposed to those who oppose him. I condemn and join in the word of God, which declares over those who are deserving, who have not measured up to his standard of righteousness and yet remain in rebellion against him. They are deserving of his judgments. Thus, Hannah celebrates the holiness of God and she proclaims the humiliation of his enemies. These concepts are expanded through her prayer. And thirdly, by way of summary, she announces hope for his people. She says, I rejoice in your salvation. She understands that Yahweh, the covenant keeper, owns the rights to salvation. That in and through and only in and through him will the promised seed of the woman bear the deliverer and the Messiah to come in due course. I rejoice, I praise that you you for your provision, for your gift, for your plan of salvation. Holiness of God, humiliation of his enemies, 
and hope for his people. Now this introduction, this is a beautiful piece of poetry that Hannah prays before the Lord. And one of the marks of its beauty is symmetry. The prayer opens with these themes, but it also closes with them. I mentioned to you the word horn, translated strength in my version here, and also the word translated exalt appear in verse 1. If you turn to verse 10, those words reappear with reference to the Messiah, to the anointed king to come. Verse 10, second half, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. You could say exalt the horn of his anointed. So you see at the beginning and the end of her prayer as brackets, she lifts up (coughs) God's purposes revealed. Especially here we see specifically in the one to come, the anointed king, the powerful deliverer whose horn will be exalted, whose strength will come from Yahweh himself. And so she praises the one who will be exalted above no other. And who would be exalted above all others, I should say, like no other. And with his power, then will proceed to reign, not only to humiliate his enemies, but as we said, to preserve, to save his people. Thus, at the beginning at the, and at the end, there's exaltation and strength announced and proclaimed. Not only do these concepts serve to bracket Hannah's prayer, but her prayer opens um, a bracket for the entire corpus of First and Second Samuel. Uh, Hannah sings this worship song or this praise this worshipful prayer to the Lord at the beginning of the account of First and Second Samuel. But David closes with the refrain towards the end. You can see evidence of this in Second Samuel 22. Notice how these themes are reiterated. And this, remember, this is the one now, David, who was anointed by Hannah's son Samuel who was the king, God's chosen and anointed one of Israel, who God gave strength to defeat and humiliate the enemies, even nine foot plus tall giants like Goliath, the Philistines and the surrounding ones, uh, and the surrounding uh, nations that set their face against the Lord and his anointed, and was a picture of Christ to come. We see as much in the New Testament when he is announced as the son of David. Now, as his songs of worship arise before the Lord, this is what he says, 2 Samuel 22, 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn, there's that word, of my salvation. My stronghold, my refuge, my savior, you save, uh, you save me from violence. And he goes on to announce those three themes in the course of his lengthy worship. In chapter 22 and chapter 23, David echoes and expands the prayer of Hannah in announcing the holiness of God, the humiliation of his enemies, and hope for his people. This is the beauty of the, and the structure of the text as we read. So here we have in the preamble, the themes in summary. As we've mentioned, holiness, humiliation, and hope. We have the brackets of this prayer as exaltation and the horn of strength being exalted. Horn referring to that, which, that implement which features the strength and stands for represents preeminence and dignity and might. A quick analogy or a quick illustration for this idea of horn. Uh, we understand deer hunting in this neck of the woods, do we not? And what does a trophy buck look like? Is the one with the tiny horns or the or tiny antlers or the big antlers? 
What would you guys rather have, all you uh, future hunters out there? Would you like uh, deer with huge antlers or tiny ones? Big ones. Now, we call an animal with large antlers or horns a trophy animal. Even today, in uh, the culture of hunting and, uh, you know, uh, taking animals and so forth along these lines, we understand something of the idea here. Those antlers represent a certain dignity, a certain power, a certain might. uh, They show forth the glory of that beast, of that animal, so much so that we celebrate them on our walls after we've achieved this great feat of hunting this animal and so forth. Well, that's similar to the idea of horn uh, associated with strength and dignity, authority and glory. Uh, exalt my horn, or my horn is exalted in the Lord, and the horn of the Messiah, the power of his anointed, is exalted in the plan of God. So we see this as a theme, and as we've mentioned, also we see the brackets of First and Second Samuel opening with this glorious prayer of Hannah. So the prophetic significance of Eve's heart cries expounded in Hannah's prayer in this preamble. Secondly, she prays. In her prayer, we see the fortunes of men and covenant triumph coming forward. Notice in verse 3, talk no no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. I wrote a phrase, a little trying to be a little maybe too clever, but a hush falls on the proud. You ever heard the phrase, a hush falls over the crowd? In Hannah's prayer, she announces a time when a hush falls over the proud, with a P. Those who announce in their bold defiance that they have power independent of the Lord, or they have ideas better than His. They reject the Lord and His salvation program. They set up idols in His place. These are the proud, and their voices yet ring in our ears today. Their voices, as such, rang in the ears of Hannah as well. Their voices were uh, figured, were represented, you could say, even in the mockery of, the, of Elkanah's other wife. Uh, rewinding a few verses to chapter 1, we see evidence of this in verses 6 and 7. And her rival, that is Hannah's rival, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So you can hear it almost in your ears, can you not? This condescending mockery, uh, teasing, and uh, making Hannah feel small, insignificant, because she could not bear children. You are a worthless wife, the other wife of Elkanah must have said. I am so much better than you. I am such a greater blessing to our husband. Look at how many children I bear. Or, you know, she comes around the corner and with uh, her midsection a little bigger than last time, guess who's pregnant again? And this kind of taunting, no doubt, served as uh, something in the ear of Hannah to just create anguish. She says as much, verse 7, So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, the other wife, used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So this is the voice of the proud, even in the taunting and the mockery of the other wife. Does anyone know her name? Don't look at you. Don't cheat. Don't look at your Bible. Does anyone know Elkanah's other wife's name? Um, maybe my mom, I think, my, did you know it? 
Yeah, awesome, good job. So mom wins a trivia contest. Uh, Penina is her name. And I would not have known her name if I hadn't been studying it this week. And so don't feel bad. But there's a reason why we know the name of Hannah and we don't know the name of Penina. Why? Because the voice of the proud was silenced. Penina, though she had children and thought she was a better, more significant, more valuable asset to her husband. In fact, the the opposite proved to be the case. She lives on in infamy in the text, thus fulfilling Hannah's words. Talk no more so very proudly. Chapter 2, verse 3, let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. If you are tempted to, do an, to uh, come up with an idea independent of what is verified of God's will and plan in Scripture, the message of Hannah's song is, hold your tongue. If you do not bite your tongue, the Lord will cut it out for you. Silence will come, aqua, uh, will come upon the proud, though they boast for a time though they exalt in their defiance and their rebellion, in their idolatry for a moment, they will be judged. Do you remember? Part of Hannah's announcement is there is coming a humiliation of his enemies. This is such a worthy text for us. And I I take refuge in it. I've been thinking a lot lately of the voices of the proud. Talk no more so proudly. Think about it in our day. The proud voices that echo in our ear the condescending faithlessness of the academic institutions, the self-proclaimed gods of popular culture, the skeptical opportunists who seek to advance at at every possible opportunity without respect to the law of God, the corrupt lawmakers who frame, according to Psalm 9420, injustice by statute, the virtue-signaling apostates who leave the infallible word of God for the shifting sands and values of our day which celebrate perversions and exalt them as values and virtues. The materialist, naturalist, scientists who claim that what we see is all there is and deny the existence of the sovereign who spoke this universe into being. These are voices of the proud. The perversion, uh, perversions championed in the name of civil rights redefinition of the institutions that God has established not to be altered by the whim of man, marriage, man, woman, family, government, and so forth, according to his law and his categories, his parameters. Lawless pundits and politicians who celebrate their depravity as if they should be celebrities for such things and we ought to worship and follow them and marvel at what they can get away with. Self-worshipping social media generation promotes themselves at the cost of virtue and the glory of the Lord at every turn. Actors, entertainers, judges, media, persona, experts, bureaucrats, world leaders, CEOs, and on and on. We are surrounded by those who speak proudly and care nothing about the covenant keeper, the Lord, Yahweh, His holy word, His strength. And the truth that he, in his holiness, demands the humiliation of his enemies and hope for his people. But make no mistake about it. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. And those who continue to speak in such arrogant ways as this list and many more could be added, no doubt, the Lord will cut them down in due course. Why? He is the God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. 
The Lord weighs the actions of those like the two wives. Hannah, who cried out in desperate prayer that the Lord would intervene on her behalf and provide for her salvation. And Penaniah, and Penina, the other wife, who mocked in this heart of arrogance, not recognizing that her children were given to her only, solely by the grace of God. The fortunes of men will eventually align with the triumph of the covenant of our God. There will come a day when the downtrodden will rejoice and the winepress of God's wrath will be full of the grapes that deserve to be trodden and his heel will stamp out every testimony against him and in the picture of eschatological language and to come, the blood of the deserving will rise to the bridle of the horses. Thus a picture of the dramatic judgment that a nation, a people, a society, a culture who bind themselves together and the antichrist spirit of Babel to build for themselves an idea of salvation independent of Christ alone will ultimately be trod under the feet of the Almighty. Those who speak so proudly will be humiliated. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. If you find yourself at all out of step with marveling in humble exaltation of the Lord as your only source of strength, repent, humble yourself and turn to Him. Today is the day of salvation. Today the proud can turn to the greatness of the Lord. They can repent of their exaltation of their own state and their own hopes independent of Him. And they can receive the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. But if they die in their rebellion, there remains only judgment on the other side of reckoning. After all, the Lord is a true source of knowledge. The lie of the serpent is in view here, is it not? The tree of the knowledge of evil, good and evil can make you just like God. No, all knowledge, omniscience, belongs to the Lord. All power belongs to Him, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. A hush falls on the proud, and the tables are turned. Note verse 4 and 5. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. You notice how the tables turn? Those who are celebrated, who are heralded, who are famous, who are celebrities, who are worshipped in this life, they will become beggars, downtrodden. They will become corrupted. Their sins will be revealed in God's due course and they will be humiliated before His just standard of righteousness. But those who have suffered for Christ's name's sake can count it joy in this hour because for them they will receive a crown of life in glory. Count it as a blessing and as joy when you are deemed worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Join the heart of the apostles who are willing to embrace the cost of taking up your cross, following Christ, and standing for Him, even in a day when you're surrounded, maybe even by family members who mock your trust and your faith in the promises, in the covenant-keeping Yahweh, uh, God, Yahweh Himself. Stand strong. Take uh, encouragement from the saints who've gone before. Even saints like Hannah who announced as much. The tables will be turned. 
three categories. Power, provision, and fruitfulness. This goes right back to the basics of Genesis as well. The devil promised power that would be superior to the Lord. He said he held out hope for man to be a rival to the power of God. And there are those who have thought themselves smarter than the Lord himself, if he even exists. Yet the tables will turn. The bows of the mighty will be broken. The aircraft carriers of modern international hubris will be sunk by the torpedoes of the Lord. And there will come a day when a nation like America will be completely obvious that she cannot place hope for her future in her war machine. It's an idol. It's an idol. And it will sink if she does not place her trust and faith in the one sovereign Lord who alone can defend us. We are vulnerable as long as we are wicked because the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who boasts an arsenal and armies more than we could ever count will take us out if we do not repent before him. The tables will turn. The proud will be silenced. The bows of the mighty will be broken. And the feeble at that point will bind on strength. I talked to a missionary from China this week and I asked him, what can we pray for you? For What can we pray for? For you, And he said, first of all, would you pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in China? Because as you probably know, pressure, tensions from the government are increasing there. And persecution is a reality for many pastors who take a stand on truth. And the state says, you bow to our gospel or else. And those who refuse to bow are sometimes de- detained, sometimes tortured, sometimes paying a high cost for their testimony of faith in the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. But the bows of China will be broken. The Lord will raise up in His due course judgment against a tyrannical nation who does not bow before Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the feeble one day, that collection of believers who hide in places underground to worship Him at fear of their own life and, being in, and, and their meetings being interrupted uh, by SWAT teams taken off, arrested, and so forth. The feeble, they will bind on strength. The tables will turn. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who had access to provision will one day be denied. This and those who were hungry have now ceased to hunger. It's no accident that the scriptures speak of Christ as the bread of life. It's, no, it's absolutely by design that the scriptures speak of him as living water. And the manna in the wilderness gives way, that picture gives way to Christ who comes and provides for us the meal of his salvation and the hope of salvation and the hope of his gospel, his kingdom that was proclaimed. He is our bread of life. He is streams of living water. And so when we partake of him, the tables turn. And those who look for bread in this life And by hook, crook, and beg, borrow, and steal to maintain their own assurance of tomorrow's meal, they will one day be found hungry, destitute, and famished. And yet those who have placed their faith in Christ, they will hunger no more, but be fully, finally, ultimately satisfied in Him. And so it goes for fruitfulness. The barren has borne seven, but she has many children, who has many children is forlorn. This is a weird one for our day because it doesn't seem to be a value in our culture to have a lot of children. Well, I know some of you are uh, happy exceptions to that rule in this church, and for that I praise the Lord. 
However, in the day that these words were written, it wasn't such a twisted culture. People saw children as a blessing, as an asset, as a glory that would festoon, that would provide a crown, and, and, and it, would, it would really uh, be a desirable thing to have a fruitful womb, and, and thus large families were deemed a great blessing. Well, these days, people bring judgment upon themselves because in their dying years, there are many, sadly, even in our culture today, who realize that their retirement plan cannot visit them in the hospital as they die of cancer with very little family to surround them. And it's a sad thing indeed. Tables have turned. They, have made, they may have been able to go on a dozen Caribbean cruises during the course of their life at the cost of their future seed, but there comes a time when you regret serving self at the cost of the sacrifice of the future of the lineage of that which is truly valuable. And this is, bas- this is basically the picture. A nation, a people, a culture who denies themselves the values and the virtues of God ca- God's categories of blessing and benefit, one day the tables will turn and the, pa- and the uh, superficial smiles that spread across their face as they indulge themselves with the temporal pleasures of sin will one day fade and they'll realize their life has been a waste. Now God's plan is sovereign. He doesn't always give faithful children. Even the barrenness of the wombs we have talked about today testify to this. This is to illustrate a spiritual reality. Let our affections, let our desires, let our obedience be conformed to the values of Scripture, that which the Lord loves and lauds, ultimately His gospel and His salvation. And when they are, we can hope in this, that one day our fortunes will be reversed And those who are least of these will become greatest in the kingdom of heaven and God's covenant will triumph. Not merely for the advancement of his people, but especially for the praise and glory of his great name. Fortunes of men, covenant triumph. Thirdly, more briefly, fortunes of men and the sovereignty of God. Note in Hannah's prayer, verses 6 through 8, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor. Uh, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He, thus he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Hannah echoes what the rest of the faithful understand. Death and life are in the power of our sovereign Lord. She has no doubt read the account of Job, or certainly has listened to the same spirit that encouraged him in his trial. He testified, similarly, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know, says Job, the confession of faith and that which ultimately transcends this life and the temporal existence of our fading and frailing and frail bodies. I know that my Redeemer lives. Death and life are in the power of our sovereign God. The fortunes of men are in His hands. And those who live large now and only to, be, uh, only to be sent to eternal death, we weep for them and pray that they might repent. But those who are downtrodden in this life, who suffer under the cost of following Christ, as we said before, they have a crown of life to look forward to. Likewise, princes and poor, a great reversal will come. A great turning of the tables will come. This is evidenced by different points through history. Nebuchadnezzar, one of my favorites. The king suddenly eats grass. Daniel, 
Who is the exile? He's the one taken captive, and his friends, they're elevated to the wisest of men in this great empire and kingdom. A total turning of the tables. Princes and poor exchange places. Uh, Haman and Mordecai, similar story. Haman, the, king, or the king's right-hand man who has the power to live or die, builds a gallows, and he has plans. He's going to kill his enemy upon it. The guy just annoys him so much. The day comes when the king above Haman, makes an executive decision, and Haman ends up dead on his own gallows. The instrument of his own exaltation and the defeat of his own enemies becomes the means of his own destruction. Saul and David. Shortly, this uh, story unfolds even as we continue through these books of the Bible here. Saul, the king who tried to kill the anointed one to come, the mere shepherd boy, time and again, he is thwarted. Saul grows insane mad with rage as he seeks to ensure his kingdom and salvation by his own strength, fails to do so, and David soon reigns in his place. Saul lives in infamy. David, uh, his name is actually granted unto the son of David to come. He participates in this glorious plan of salvation. The fortunes of men and the sovereignty of God are illustrated all through the course of history. Finally this morning, the fortunes of men and the glory of the Messiah. Again, prophetic significance of Eve's heart cry expanded, expounded in Hannah's prayer. Notice how she closes her prayer. Verse 9, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. That's an important phrase. Not by might shall a man prevail. Verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. Ultimately, the fortunes of men are secure in the glory of the Messiah. A King of Kings was to come through the lineage of the godly woman, as it were. Through those who join in the heart cry of Eve. Unto them a child is born. Unto them would one day a son be given, and he would be, he, he would be given strength. His horn would be exalted. And thus proving that not by the strength of mere man will anyone prevail, but instead by the power of the God-man, the Messiah to come, the anointed one, so God's purposes would unfold and nothing could stand in their way. This is the message, the hope, that is held out in Hannah's prayer. This is the first time in the scriptures that the term anointed, which is synonymous with Messiah, which is synonymous with Christ, appears in the scriptures with reference to a king. There will be a king who will be a Messiah, anointed, a Christ, the one who would come to save, the one who is given specific calling and ability by the sovereign God to intervene for our hope and deliverance. This is the close of Hannah's prayer. It's not by might. The holiness of God demands those who trust in their own ability and resources will ultimately fail in their efforts and ambitions. Only one claim to salvation stands. There is only one Savior. Again, we see the themes in suffering in summary, holiness, humiliation, and hope. Holiness of God, humiliation of His enemies, and hope for His people. 
All of this is looking forward to the Messiah to come. And finally, we see in Hannah's prayer an expectation of a powerful, exalted, anointed king. Powerful, exalted, anointed king, Christ, Messiah. This is an amazing uh, prayer indeed. And the heart cry of Eve continues in this prophetic confession of Hannah to announce the coming of a glorious king of kings. In a few centuries, Mary herself will echo this very prayer. Why? Because it is fitted for the lips of the one who is called out, appointed by God, a virgin indeed, receives the word of the Lord, answers, be it unto me according to your word, and in effect, a barren womb is once again miraculously brought to life, this time with the fulfillment of the seed of the woman to come, Christ himself. In the meantime, Hannah's son Samuel will go on to anoint David, King David, the king of Israel, who will receive the covenant promise of an eternal lineage. And this will be fulfilled on the announcement of the son of David, born in Bethlehem to a virgin on that what we call Christmas morning. Finally, finally, this message of hope that has been announced at milestones through covenant history reaches its fulfillment. And the seed of the woman is born to Mary and will soon crush the serpent's head. This, I submit to you, is the heart cry of Eve, and it does come to pass. And of all the saints that lived in Scripture, our position is more enviable than theirs. Why? Because we have the blessing and benefit, by the Spirit's use of the Word of God, of 2020 hindsight. We can see how God has done this as we read His Holy Scriptures. Should we not praise the Lord? with at least as much enthusiasm as Hannah? Yes, we should, and more. Let us close in prayer that we would take the application seriously. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the power of your holiness, Lord, revealed in Scripture, and also, Lord, the power of your judgments revealed in the humiliation of your enemies through history. And finally, in the hope of salvation, manifest in Christ our Lord, born in the fullness of time of a virgin, to live, die, to be buried, to be crucified, to be resurrected and ascended, Lord, to fulfill all the necessary condition, conditions for our salvation. Lord, may we, in light of your truth revealed, join the prayer and worshipful heart of Mary, Hannah, Sarah, Rachel, Eve, all these faithful women who saw their hope in your promises. May we join them and echo your praises as well, having received the promised seed in Christ when we bowed before His Lordship and trusted in Him, repented of our sins, and placed our faith in His work on Calvary for our salvation. In His holy name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.